giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robots Smashing Into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytel, and with me today is Carlos Gaitan, the founder and CEO of Benchmark Labs, which provides IoT-based weather forecasting solutions for the agriculture, energy, and insurance sectors worldwide using proprietary machine learning software. Carlos, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for the invitation, Chad. It's a pleasure to join you here. You work in a variety of different industries with weather forecasting solutions using machine learning. I'm really curious, at a high level, how did you get to where you created Benchmark Labs today? Oh, thank you, Chad. That's a great question. I think that in many ways, it's a combination of life experiences and uh, lots of user feedback. As a background, my mom worked for 28 years in the National Federation of Coffee Growers in my native Colombia. And we experienced uh, basically the effects of uh, weather, La Nina, El Nino, local conditions, pests on the coffee growers. I remember growing up looking at the price in the New York stock exchange, if the pound of coffee was going to be more than one dollar or not <laughs> mm. and so on so uh, you know we had a very severe drought in colombia uh, colombia was uh, heavily dependent in hydropower at that time and uh, i remember that we even had to study with candlelight and move to a spring savings time for the first time in the country the country's mm. in the equator so you can imagine moving the clock was unheard of so since then, I was always like uh, passionate about hydrology, the water cycle, why this happened, how weather can affect the economy at that level that people, you know, have to change their working habits. Uh, I did uh, civil engineering, hydrology, then study these new applications of machine learning technologies, hydroinformatics. Did my studies there in Colombia, my bachelor's, my master's. Then I was fortunate to go to the University of British Columbia to study uh, my PhD in atmospheric sciences. Uh, and then after I finished, uh, I moved to the United States to work at the Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Laboratory in Princeton with close collaboration with uh, NOAA, the USGS. And uh, that gave that perspective also of understanding how weather uh, climate uh, models were done at the, at the Department of Commerce level, but also to understand the users on how they interact with weather data or climate data uh, and what uh, were the needs that they were expecting from the National Weather Service and the Department of Commerce and NOAA that uh, not necessarily were fulfilled with the current information. So uh, then I moved to the private sector, I joined a hardware company and met my co-founder of uh, Benchmark Labs uh, there, uh, then uh, moved to California, uh, work on consultancy of climate change assessments. But since uh, the time at uh, the Department of Commerce, it became very clear that what farmers and what users wanted was where information that was more actionable, that was tailored to their specific location, especially for specialty crops. Uh, think about uh, wineries or coffee growers, uh, orchards, stone fruits. Mm-hmm. Uh, they depend heavily on weather. And uh, the information from the National Weather Services was just too coarse for them. Uh, and sometimes there are huge errors 
in terms of uh, temperatures that were recorded from their farm versus what the National Weather Service uh, was doing. And that's why we decided to create benchmark labs to uh, basically solve that problem, uh, correct those errors, and give the information that the users uh, needed when they needed it. Did you ever just consider becoming a TV weather person? <laughs> it seems <laughs> maybe easier. <laughs> that, that's a very good point. Uh, <laughs> and I have like uh, great respect with my uh, colleagues uh, that went into <laughs> into forecast meteorology and uh, TV persons. Uh, I remember some of my lab mates uh, practicing in front of a green screen <laughs> uh, uh, when we were doing the PhD. That was uh, an interesting uh, <laughs> scenario. Uh, however, like growing up in Colombia, uh, the weather forecasts were not very, let's say, accurate yeah. to a certain extent. And we did the opposite than the weatherman <laughs> suggested. So I guess that that steered me towards following that path. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> So I totally, it totally resonates with me, this idea that, you know, especially for, I've been in on the West Coast before where you go over a hill and the, the weather that it's like 20 degrees hotter and, and sunny. And on one side of the hill, it was, you know, cold and foggy. You know, we went on a great company trip many years ago to visit some Napa vineyards and, and I was surprised by that. So I can imagine how that local information just doesn't match the global information that that farmers might be getting. So what is the hardware that you're actually producing and, and what is it doing? What does it look like? <laughs> yeah, no, great question. So I will go back to your uh, um, <laughs> almost story about Napa and Sonoma. And the reality is uh, that's exactly a problem that growers face. National wares agencies give averages over a big region. They divide the world in boxes and everybody inside of a box receives the exactly the same forecast. And uh, if you are, especially in the coast or you are in specialty agriculture, uh, you understand that weather changes with elevation, depending on which side of the mountain you are, you could receive all the rain or not rain at all. If you are near the shores, you could also get more wind, uh, different types of clouds, that all of those uh, situations, micro effects, affect the conditions at the farm. And uh, going back to the situation of Napa and Sonoma, uh, Burgundy or the Mediterranean basin, they all believe in the value of what they call the terroir. That is what makes also unique uh, their products, their vintages, and they understand at a very fundamental point, how the local conditions from the soil, from the vegetation makes their farm unique. Uh, so what we do is uh, we use IoT sensors, basically hardware sensors that monitor environmental variables. We refer them in the atmospheric science world as weather stations. Mm -hmm. I had a talk with some users that when I said the term weather station, they imagine a big construction or a building uh, with a TV station and a radar or something. Uh, but in this case, there are IoT devices that are totally portable, the size of a Wi-Fi modem in some cases. And we use those sensors as ground truth that will uh, basically tell us the local conditions. We use the information from the National Weather Services and information from those IoT sensors and correct the forecast as they come. And is that where the 
machine learning comes in because it's it's actually correcting the forecast being received? Exactly. Our machine learning aspect of it, it's a fully operational, nonlinear correction of weather data as it comes in from the National Weather Services to correct it to the conditions that are experienced at the, at the farm level, at the sensor level. And a farm could be also an agricultural farm or it could be a solar farm, a wind farm, uh, or as we talk with uh, some users in ski resorts that actually they consider snow farmers. Mm. It's, a, it's a great, uh, they are also affected by microclimates. So at the end, uh, it's about providing value with, to all these areas affected by microclimates that are not uh, being resolved correctly by the current generation of uh, forecasts from the National Weather Services. Are most customers able to get the coverage that they need with one weather station or are they deploying multiple ones? So that's a, that's a great question. And uh, the answer probably is it depends. Uh, our customers, uh, original customers, have like thousands of stations mm-hmm. uh, over uh, multiple fields under management. Uh, for specialty crops, it's common to have uh, multiple IoT sensors in one acre. Uh, for other uh, scenarios, they might have only one station or one sensor every uh, 10 acres or so on. So it, it depends on the condition. It depends how technologically inclined are the users, uh, if they're already invested in these IoT sensors, or if they are looking into buying IoT sensors and then scaling up uh, the number of sensors in their farms. How do all the sensors report their data back That is a very interesting question because there are, let's say, tens of hardware manufacturers Mm. uh, globally. Uh, We also created kind of a Rosetta Stone that puts all these sensors to uh, communicate to our backend systems. We integrate uh, different languages of uh, each hardware manufacturer has its own ways of naming the variables. So we do the translation in our end uh, we receive the data uh, via an API. These IoT devices are Internet of Things in many ways because they transmit data via Wi-Fi, satellite, uh, internet, uh, you know, cellular. Cell, yeah. Yeah. So different manufacturers might have different ways of actual communication, not just the protocol, but one box might be using Wi-Fi and another one might be using a satellite. Exactly. And sometimes it's, uh, many manufacturers give you the options of mm-hmm. connecting uh, even uh, using Wi-Fi or Bluetooth for uh, IoT sensors that are near, let's say, uh, a farm that has internet connectivity. If they are on the field farther away, they might need to get access to a data plan uh, from a cellular carrier, uh, 3G usually or 5G in some areas. There is uh, limited coverage uh, so far. And if it's a very remote uh, area, uh, there are options to get uh, satellite coverage. So Now, I'm asking somewhat naive questions based on my understanding. And so if I start butting up against like proprietary information, <laughs> just tell me, no, that's totally fine. So when we're thinking about the amount of data coming in from all of these different weather stations that your customers have, is it a lot of data? Is it a lot of data points? <laughs> no, it's a, it's a great question. So uh, in, in many ways, uh, yeah, each, each weather station communicates uh, at different frequency. Sometimes 
uh, what we are offering now it's uh, hourly uh, mm -hmm. transmission rates but we also have access to government stations that uh, sometimes they only refresh uh, once per day uh, so yes it's uh, it's a lot of data coming in uh, most of the data from the weather stations fortunately it can be transmitted as a text file or very it's only for one location so the mm -hmm. files are not big but they are uh, many per day and so we have probably done millions of operations uh, already to to just assimilate data and provide the forecast while on the other hand the nature the national weather service uh, provides one forecast for the globe let's say every some models are every hour other models are every six hours and so on so that is a more, uh, let's say, uh, <laughs> a bigger data set mm -hmm. uh, because it's a global data set that then you have to query uh, to extract the information locally that is relevant for your servers, for your users. Yeah, and I think it's, uh, I think it's neat how this is all happening centrally from all the data coming in, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we we get the data coming in. Uh, for each specific location, we do the corrections and we provide the forecasts. So there are lots of operations involved and the data handling activities, pre-processing, post-processing. But uh, it's very rewarding at the end to provide the, the forecasts that are tailored to the specific locations. And uh, we had seen users that uh, they basically told us, uh, okay, we are using a provider B or C. Uh, can you beat them? Uh, show us that you can beat them and the contact will be yours. So we show them and then they are like, you know, yeah, that's fantastic. It's exactly what we have been looking for, information that is more accurate uh, for our farms. So, yeah. Now, does your system sort of correct itself based on what actually happened in an area after the modified forecast goes out? That's a very relevant question because some of the models are static. Mm -hmm. uh, I used uh, my experience when I uh, did an internship in Environment Canada, and I found uh, that they were uh, adjusting their models, let's say, four times per, at least the, the operational models, they had uh, four times per year. They kind of tweaked them to the local, let's say, spring, summer, fall, mm -hmm. winter conditions. In our case, we make our models to correct themselves as more data comes in, so they can adjust to weather events and have like a shorter shorter memory let's say yeah. of what they they will wait heavily uh, on and forget the distant right. pass right i mean it seems obvious not necessarily easy <laughs> but <laughs> obvious that you've made a prediction about what the weather is going to be and you have all the data coming in from the stations to confirm whether your prediction was correct or not so I'm sure it's not easy to adjust the model based on that. That seems obvious to me. Yeah, it's um, it's just a different approach in many ways. It's uh, mm -hmm. as you say, it's obvious because the users usually care about a specific location. Uh, at least our users, we understand that for national security or aviation, they require a model that uh, provides uh, a coverage over a wider area, like sometimes continents. Uh, but for agricultural users, they care about their farms and the farms will not move in space. So, <laughs> well, technically they are moving in space. It just, <laughs> the weather goes along with it. 
<laughs> so yeah, I guess that it's just a different way of tackling the problem. We focus on doing these forecasts to each specific location instead of having a forecast done for the whole globe that could be used at uh, many different locations or for many different industries, but it's not necessarily tailored to any industry in a specific or location in a specific. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I wanted to tell you all about something I've been working on quietly for the past year or so, and that's Agency U. Agency U is a membership-based program where I work one-on-one with a small group of agency founders and leaders toward their business goals. We do one-on-one coaching sessions and also monthly group meetings. We start with goal setting, advice, and problem solving based on my experiences over the last 18 years of running ThoughtBot. As we progress as a group, we all get to know each other more, and many of the Agency U members are now working on client projects together and even referring work to each other. Whether you're struggling to grow an agency, taking it to the next level and having growing pains, or a solo founder who just needs someone to talk to, in my 18 years of leading and growing ThoughtBot, I've seen and learned from a lot of different situations, and I'd be happy to work with you. Learn more and sign up today at thoughtbot.com slash agency U. That's A-G-E-N-C-Y, the letter U. So have you managed to bring it full circle now? And are there coffee growers in Colombia that are using your solution? <laughs> I hope so. I know. No, no. <laughs> uh, we have talked with coffee growers for sure. Uh, they care about uh, temperature gradients. And I really think that going to Colombia uh, as we scale will make uh, the whole uh, platform easier to use. Uh, I think that we can go to full circle soon. Sooner rather than later into Colombia, we got support from the World Trade Center uh, here in San Diego to do commercialization assistance to translate our solution from English to other languages. Mm -hmm. So we will be tackling uh, Spanish, uh, French, Italian uh, in the very near future. Because it's important to offer the forecast also in a way that they could interact uh, natively without having to have the limitation of uh, using an English uh, language platform into their day-to-day life. So, but yeah, full circle probably will be going full circle soon. So language is one barrier to scaling and to adoption. Are, are there other ones that are typical barriers of adoption for your customers? We are very competitive here in the North American market, European markets. Our prices are in dollars, but uh, that by itself is a problem uh, for emerging economies. As uh, you know, for example, you know, one hundred dollars here is not the same thing as one hundred dollars in right. in uh, in other countries that we have to take into consideration exchange rates or uh, the amount of disposable income that they will have for their operations. And I'm not super educated about it, but I know that there are certain industries in agriculture that are where the growers are particularly pressed for margins and coffee is one of them, right? Exactly. So uh, fortunately, in many ways, for the bigger crops, mm-hmm. in a specialty crops, they are traded and the prices are uh, linked to uh, US dollars. So that can be translated. Our services can be absorbed, let's say, mm-hmm. easily. For smaller crops that are not traded or that they just trade locally and the price is not linked to the US exchange, then it's definitely it's a bigger barrier for them. But hopefully we will get to a point if 
we have a sufficiently large adoption in North America and the developed world, these technologies could be subsidized or make more accessible uh, in other economies. What are some of the concerns that growers have? Take the specialty crops, for example. Is it a matter of, are they doing this because they want to make the best product possible? Or is it because they're, they want to prevent crop loss? It is both. Actually, mm-hmm. uh, the uses of weather information in agriculture varied. As you say, like, there are many different applications. Uh, one is to get uh, more actionable alerts. For example, uh, we saw what happened in Burgundy last year where substantial part of the region uh, lost uh, their crops. I think that close to 80%, maybe. I don't remember the number, but it was like definitely substantial. Uh, so having a more accurate uh, forecasts and alerts give them a, an opportunity to adapt better, to get cover, protect their fields in, to a certain extent. Uh, they can uh, weather information affects also pest and disease models. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, application of fertilizer or spraying are also affected by local conditions. In many ways, for the operations that are very, uh, let's say, sophisticated, the, some of them even link the sugar content on the fruit to weather conditions and understanding how these weather conditions affect sugars could tell them when is the optimal time for them to, uh, let's say, harvest. Mm-hmm. And a uh, difference in the sugar content might determine the difference between uh, higher margins or so-so margins. <laughs> yeah. for the yield so so yeah it's a, it's a combination of quality of the product it's a combination of preventing loss of the product and uh, also, also labor scheduling and uh, activities for example that are regulated by osha that prevents uh, farm operations to uh, be done let's say if they are like temperatures above 95 fahrenheit or 100 fahrenheit so having that extra information in situ and alerts will also help them with la, uh, farm management uh, operations mm-hmm so can you give me a sense of the sort of stage you're at or the scale you're at now with the business and, and where you're, you see your next stages of growth being? Thank you. Yeah, great. Yeah, so we were fortunately to have a, a scale this uh, solution beyond uh, California. We are now a global platform. We are providing forecasts uh, to Spain, uh, uh, recently, we got, we got contacted by some growers in South America. Uh, so we are testing uh, for uh, avocado growers in Brazil and Colombia, for example. Uh, so I'm not uh, serving yet coffee growers in Colombia, but <laughs> the avocado growers in Colombia, it seems that they got a hold on what we do. <laughs> yeah. uh, so it's, uh, it's, uh, it's getting there. Uh, now we have the resources, the ability to, to go global and offer these anywhere in the world that is connected with an IoT device. So it's fully operational. And we are uh, now in the midst of uh, a fundraising to uh, scale the team, um, provide these uh, customer success uh, operations and uh, to support you know, growers in different geographies, to support growers of different crops. And I think that if we are going to be successful, Globally, uh, it starts with customer support, customer success, and understanding the user's needs so they don't feel that, again, they will receive a one-size-fits-all vanilla-like solution. Mm-hmm. 
and that we really care about uh, why specialty crops are special. So when you were just starting out, who was your the first team member that you added to the team? Oh, it's great. <laughs> so uh, in many ways, uh, I thank the Economic Development Council of uh, San Diego for funding uh, a mm-hmm. set of interns in uh, data science, weather uh, analytics, and business development. So uh, first hires in many ways were supported thanks to the Economic Development Council. We were the two founders, and then we got support in business development to understand which, for example, specialty crops uh, really care about weather. Uh, then some data science interns, data scientists that helped us uh, with uh, grants that we uh, did for the National Science Foundation and NASA uh, that we got. Uh, we supported one of the grants during COVID uh, times. Uh, we participated in a, a very interesting opportunity to know the effect of COVID on forest fires, uh, for example, and that was in collaboration with NASA. So first hires were like uh, interns, uh, entry-level positions in data science, in back-end engineering, uh, and then uh, front-end business development. And uh, yeah, now we are very excited to to be expanding the team. We recently uh, hired a chief product officer, had 10 years of experience in Bloomberg, uh, experience with visualizations and uh, talking to customers and uh, users. So I think that for us, it's very important to, again, reiterate to have a the ability to provide a great user experience, to provide uh, meaningful information for specialty crops uh, so they feel that they are special. Yeah. You mentioned that you got some business development help using those grants, but right now is the actual sales work being done by by the founding team? Yeah. At the, at the beginning, um, as, a, as a founding team in a small startup, you have to wear multiple hats. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, it's uh, it's very common, and I, in many ways, I appreciate that we didn't rush to hire in terms of sales too early, mm-hmm. because it's important that the founding team understands the user perspectives, the needs, their, you know, what they call the pain points, right? To understand how to steer product into that direction. And then uh, sales will follow uh, once you have a solution that uh, is highly needed, that users really like, and that it, it can be shown that it can be scaled uh, globally. So we are working, we work on the scaling, on accuracy of the forecasts, and uh, yeah, next hires will be to get somebody that will help us in sales and um, can uh, bring us to the next level. What does the sales cycle look like for the kinds of customers you have now? Do they tend to be smaller or do they tend to be sort of larger enterprise customers? So at the beginning, we worked with smaller enterprises Mm -hmm. to understand uh, how to uh, use the data, for example, connect the data from one or five sensors uh, transmitted online. Uh, So dealing with smaller enterprises farmers was optimal at that point as a company. Uh, now we are focusing more on businesses, uh, farm managers, farm management companies uh, that have uh, hundreds, sometimes thousands of sensors under management. So uh, we deal with uh, more like business to business instead of going direct to grower uh, at this stage. Because we are, as uh, we were mentioning earlier, we're a small company and going direct to grower, it's, uh, it requires lots of uh, support also and uh, dedication 
uh, in terms of uh, dedicated agents and, and sales teams. Yeah. Do those companies tend to have long sales cycles? The bigger ones, yes. If you are talking about publicly traded companies, they they will want to start with pilots, then validate them, and uh, you can move uh, different uh, timescales with them uh, that are not necessarily aligned with the startups at this stage. Uh, but there are some uh, farm managers that they have a way uh, higher frequency uh, of decision-making. So the sales cycle could be one month, two months, mm-hmm. uh, instead of having to build a relationship for years. You mentioned you know, the pilots, and you mentioned earlier you were telling the story about a, a customer that said, you know, if you, if you can provide us with better data. But I, I, you know, I think companies, as they scale or as they talk to potential customers, you also don't want to take on too much work that you should be charging for to be able to do that pilot. How do you strike that balance? It's a, it's a fascinating question. And I think that from a founding uh, member uh, perspective, let's say, mm-hmm. it goes as a function of like the stage of the company and what uh, other non-necessarily monetary benefits you can get from uh, these pilots. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have been even uh, recommended to not, don't have uh, unpaid pilots anymore. For example, Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that it's important at the beginning to uh, get access to the information that you need to validate the technology with users that really care uh, about what you are building. Uh, And sometimes uh, there are different ways that these pilots can be structured in a way that the final user might uh, give you a reference or might uh, spend time with you doing the quality control, quality check, saying what what kind of features they like. So that's also very important uh, as a younger startup. Uh, as you grow, probably once you have that validation, uh, there is no need necessarily to take into endeavors that will lead to unpaid pilots that you don't know if there's a clear end to that. And you can move to a more structured uh, pilot program uh, that have like clear deliverables. And at the end mm-hmm. of a window, uh, they, a decision will be made right. depending on the on a set of topics that were agreed between the companies. You might even be able to get away without pilots if you can make a strong case by showing other case studies that are relevant to that potential customer or um, where, where you explain, oh, you know, th- these people had a similar situation to you and here's how it solved it and here's how the success that they had. Totally, you, you nail it. It's uh, in many ways, sometimes it's the... The build credibility, uh, find analogs in the sector or uh, as use case that can be comparable to the pain point that another user might have. And it could be, let's start with the avocado growers in, in Brazil and have the, probably the same pain points that they have in the avocado growers in Colombia. Uh, once we have that uh, sorted out, then we probably can go and talk with avocado growers here in California. Uh, or Mexico, Central America, and tell them, hey, this is the value that we've unlocked uh, in Brazil. Uh, Do you have a similar problem? What I've found is that this is one of the important reasons why you have to have a good product, which is why why part of what you've been saying all along, you know, you really wanted to focus on making sure the product was working and that it was good. Because when you do, then you can also use referral, you know, uh, not referrals, but like, you know, hey, you want to talk to this avocado grower, and they'll be happy to talk 
with another potential customer because they're excited about what you've done for them and been able to do with them. Totally, totally. Agriculture is uh, it's always open to new technologies, but they are traditional in many ways. And uh, it's a small circle. And uh, I think that is very important to build the products right and really care about what you're doing and the, your end users. Build together. Uh, don't come uh, necessarily with assumptions uh, saying, hey, here, agricultural grower, hey, I have a solution that will change your life uh, without uh, knowing necessarily uh, where they're coming from and their life experiences and how they interact with products before. So yeah, I totally see the benefit of referrals. Word of mouth is very big. Going to conferences uh, with agricultural growers, where that's uh, there are big networking events, uh, let's say, yeah. that uh, could help us uh, more than just going and do a Google ad campaign, for example, at this stage. Well, I think that's probably an important lesson that not only applies in agriculture, but in a lot of industries. And I really appreciate you stopping by to share with us. And I really wish you the best of luck as you progress in your journey at Benchmark. Oh, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And uh, I hope that we can continue conversation here. Just count with us anytime that you need to talk about weather, agriculture, IoT sensors. Uh, happy to help the audience uh, too. And uh, always discuss what's out there to help the giant robots community. (laughs) Carlos, if people want to get in touch with you or find out more about the company, where are the best places for them to do that? Go to benchmarklabs.com and then uh, fill out a a form there and we will definitely be in touch with uh, all of you. I will personally answer all the queries. Uh, Very, very happy to to share our technology, uh, share how what we are building. And uh, we are so excited because by having this technology, uh, you can help save water, energy, and uh, even pesticide uses. And uh, that's a huge contribution to the environment as uh, we move forward. Yeah. So, so yeah, thank you very much again for the invitation. And uh, I'm, I'm here, count with me as a future resource too. Wonderful. And you can subscribe to the show and find notes and links along with an entire transcript for this episode at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm. And you can find me on Twitter at cpytel. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Mandy Moore. Thanks for listening and see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.